If you have your own copy of scriptures or you want to grab the Pew Bible or open up your phone, we are in Matthew chapter 2 this morning, and we're just looking at four verses, verses 1 and 2 and verses 7 to 9. Listen now to the word of the Lord. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star rise when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, many years ago now, when I was in elementary school, my sister and I were in the car with my dad one evening running some sort of errands or traveling to and from some sort of event, and there was uh, a spotlight that shot up in the sky in the dark as we were driving our errands. And uh, back in my Gen X childhood in the 80s and 90s, if you wanted to draw attention to an event beyond maybe marketing it in the newspaper or handing paper flyers out, you would, at the moment of that event or festival or fair, maybe use a spotlight at night and shine it up into the sky. The idea being that it would attract attention. There would be curiosity and maybe people would drive to kind of find out what the source of the light was. And you would use sometimes spotlights for county fairs or grand openings of, of stores or, and such. Uh, today, we obviously don't have to do that. You can send an email, you can post on social media, you can group text people, whatever it might be. But back in the day, as the saying goes, we actually would drive to find a spotlight. And so this is what my dad and my sister and I did. Uh, we asked my dad, could we go see where that's coming from? And my dad indulged us. And we found ourselves driving towards the light, not knowing exactly where it was, but we knew if it got brighter, we were getting closer. And and maybe we would take an occasional turn away from it as we navigated our way through a neighborhood with a dead end or a cul-de-sac. But eventually, we came within a couple blocks of this light. And I remember this big white cone um, of white shooting up behind the couple of rows of houses and stores uh, that it was situated behind. And finally, we turned the corner onto the road where, um, where the light was coming from, and my dad, knowing where we were, just started to belly laugh and started to chuckle a little bit. And my sister and I hadn't figured it out yet, so we were um, both like little kids in the back seat, and I, just, I do remember like, you know, the elbows we were throwing to try to see if we could poke our heads through the center of the two front seats because we wanted to be the one to see where it was at. And we eventually drove into this big parking lot and I remember seeing these four black metal steel cans sort of twisting these lights in the sky and um, sort of shot up like this, this one cone of lights and we had found it. We were, of course, thrilled. And my dad is just sitting in the car laughing. And finally, my sister and I looked around, we're like, okay, where are we? We were in the car, in the parking lot of a car dealership. 
and we had hoped something magical might be in that place, but I think it was a Pontiac dealership to be exact. It was a bit of a letdown. My dad laughed. We drove home. Have you ever done this? Are you from a generation maybe where you did this very thing? Maybe you've chased a rainbow before. Maybe the sun came out on a rainy day and you were like, wait, we actually feel close-ish to finding out maybe where the rainbow set itself and its colors into the field. Maybe you've chased a simple firefly on a summer night. Maybe you've chased in your life a different kind of light, an idea, a relationship, a person, um, a desire you have, um, something shiny on the horizon of your life that you've looked for and wondered about. Have you ever perhaps even chased God, wondered about where God might be, chased God down? Today we find ourselves in a biblical story that is mysterious. Ancient men in pursuit of a bright light dangling in the sky, their desires perhaps, their earnestness to find out what it is not all that unlike maybe some of the desires for the things we chase today. The wise men we read saw his star, saw the star of Jesus when it rose, and Scripture says they came to worship him. Now, the Magi were accomplished scholars, astrologers who would have regularly watched the night sky. They would have known the characters in the night that danced regularly across their horizon. So they were well aware that something unusual was happening. It was out of place. There was a light pulsing in the sky that was different than what they had expected, different from what maybe their charts or constellation maps showed. And I wonder what the conversation they had together was like when they saw this light begin to rise and shine in the, star, in the sky. Maybe they asked one another, are you seeing what I'm seeing? I mean, am I, am I crazy here? Check the charts. Is this supposed to be happening? What does your map show? Did they discuss it much? Did they debate it? Whose idea was it to say, let's go follow? And what did they discuss as they all came to agreement that, yes, indeed, they were going to follow? And for whatever reason, they followed, and the thousands of people they passed along the way didn't follow. They were going about their ordinary lives. My sister and I and my dad, when we were in that car, we drove past hundreds of people that night on the road. None of them, maybe a few of them perhaps, but most of them were not going to find the spotlight in a used car dealership lot. People go about their lives, and then all of a sudden for the Magi, they are intrigued. No one else in this narrative has that same curiosity. The Magi pursue it. The world around them is not drawn to it, but they were. What was this star? And because it holds such a prominent place in our Christmas narratives, of course, for centuries, scientists and astronomers have tried to answer the question as to what exactly this star could have been. I mean, many suggest, of course, it could have simply been a miracle or an angel. 
God in his divine power and glory scooped up an orb of light and dropped it into the inky night sky right above where Jesus was resting with Mary and Joseph. It is well within the boundaries of God to do this, and of course this is such an occasion that might demand just that sort of miracle. Others have suggested throughout history it was actually an angel. St. John of Chrysostom wrote um, about a star not uh, being accurate. He felt like it was an angel. He thought a star couldn't lead you to a pinpoint location, but an angel could actually guide you to a specific spot. So he wondered centuries ago, perhaps if it was an angel. More recent scholars have wondered if it was a supernova or a comet or some sort of um, space phenomena that we know today, that we're familiar with today, but there's no history of a comet that would have passed at that time, and a comet probably would have moved too quickly, a supernova possibly not seen with the naked eye. And one plausible explanation that some scholars believe, especially a, a gentleman named Michael Molner from Rutgers, who wrote a star titled The Star of Bethlehem, suggests that it's something called a conjunction. There is um, a phenomena where uh, a couple different planets might line up together with the sun and the moon, and here we are looking at them from some dark spot, a little speck on planet Earth, and even though those bodies are millions of miles apart, they could line up to our eyes and appear to be a bright light looming in the sky. And astronomers have traced back to this time in history and believe that very close to this time that Jupiter and Earth and the moon and the sun all lined up together. Possibly this is the star of Bethlehem. What exactly it was doesn't matter as much as the fact that God used something in the natural world to lead the Magi to follow. And this is a time in history where they didn't know some of the words that I just used, like supernova and comet. No one had been to space. Stars were magical. They were mysterious. They were symbols of the divine. They were not the gases and, and orbs of fire, perhaps, in the sky that we know them as today. They were mysterious. And they indicated to most people at that time that something magical was happening. And indeed, the Magi believed that, and they followed. Now, in this text, it's interesting to note the different responses to the star. An indication of something magic and holy. This is what the Magi believed. But Herod, on the other hand, and we will actually talk more about this next week, Herod heard about the star recognized because of what they believed about stars at that time, recognized there was probably power in it, and he wanted that kind of power for himself. And we later find out the way he manipulates and traumatizes people in pursuit of that star. Herod decides to try and manage it. The Magi go to worship it. The story of Christmas offers us a glimpse then into the myriad of responses that not just the Magi, but others in the narrative have, the responses they have to the divine. Mary responds to God in our Christmas narratives with questions and with awe. Joseph responds 
with quiet acceptance. The shepherds were told watching their flocks in the field by night were actually terrified when the presence of the holy presented itself. Herod, as we just said, responds with fear and anger. And indeed, when it was their turn, the magi responded with curiosity, with wisdom, and with expectation. These magi from the East were not members of the Jewish community. They had not grown up and been taught to look for signs of the Messiah's coming. They were likely Persian with a faith tradition that would not have led them to look for a Jewish savior. Yet something about this star beckoned to them. God spoke to their hearts and they moved and responded. Part of what makes our narratives at this time of year, at Christmas, so magical is that this birth of Jesus comes into the world and takes place on the darkest of nights. In fact, Luke 2.8 tells us that the shepherds were in the fields keeping the night watch, which would have been the darkest portions of the overnight hours. Very, very dark when you consider the fact that this is a time in human history without the ever-present glow of massive urban centers. We have a hard time here in Chicagoland going outside and looking up at the night sky and finding too many stars because the glow of the city nearby is too much. This is a time in history without flipping on light switches, without massive urban centers like the ones we have today. It would have been a very, very night, very dark night into which Jesus was born. As most of us know, night holds mystery. We slow down at night. Sometimes we even notice or begin to get in touch with the secrets or the sadness that the night can hold. Deep loss and grief slip into our bedrooms at the middle of the night. We might wake up afraid for our health in the middle of the night or aching after our loved ones or angsting over our careers or our paychecks over our coursework. For some reason in those wee hours is when we start to wonder, did I do enough? Am I enough? Will I ever have enough? Did I love enough? Does somebody love me enough? We lie in the dark in the stillness of a room, perhaps at 3 a.m. in the darkest night hours, grieving over someone we lost, reliving perhaps a mistake that we made. Fictional tales of mystery and intrigue and sometimes even horror take place in the dark where the shadows loom. It is so interesting that young children wake up in the middle of the night and instinctively cry out for someone. There's a sense of loneliness, a loss of companionship that is triggered in them when they wake up. Are you with me? Am I alone? It is not a mistake then that the great light of God came to this world during the darkest watch of night. In John's account of the Christmas story, he speaks of this light, this light in the dark skies of life. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all humankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Throughout Scripture, darkness and light are strange companions. Neither can exist without the other. Barbara Brown Taylor writes about this topic in her book titled Learning to Walk in the Dark, an excerpt of which actually many years ago landed the cover, the cover story of Time magazine, suggesting just a bit of how the darkness and light of God resonate with so, so many of us. And Taylor illustrates the emphasis we need to place on sometimes embracing the darkness because it is only in the dark that we can see the light of God. We need to sit for a minute and let our eyes adjust to what is happening, to take in the magnitude of whatever emotions and struggles and anxieties or terrors that we face. We don't, as human beings, exactly like to do this very much. It is not high on the priority list to sit and process everything that we go through on a daily basis as human beings. It is not high on our list to process the war that takes place all around the world, the loss, and how those things interact and intersect with our lives. It's interesting, though, that Jesus, just three chapters later, after this passage in the book of Matthew, says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who stop long enough to take stock of the darkness. Blessed are those who survey the loss and the grief and who let their eyes adjust to the dark so that they can see the light. We are not alone in the dark. I think this is why it's so important to let it settle in at times. Psalm 46 Verses 1 to 3 remind us that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. We are not alone. What shape do you make out in the darkness that is the light of God or the presence of God with you in the dark? It's interesting how little we can see of God's light during the day. Taylor writes, during the day, it's hard to remember that all those stars, that this star actually is in the sky. We're too blinded sometimes by the sun to see the light of God shining through. And it is in the night that we also find the time and the space, perhaps, to rest and to think. For most of us, the house is very quiet at night. There's not much expected of us. Our eyes and our bodies finally begin to adjust to some of the realities we carry day in and day out. It might be in the quiet of night where the passage from God be still and know that I am God is made most known to us. Personally, I feel at night sometimes like 
I do in the dark depths of winter. Don't get me wrong, I much prefer the summer, the chance to sprint across my driveway barefoot to grab something I forgot in the car without having to bundle up to step outside for two minutes. Summer is busy. It's a constant buzz of light and energy and sound and expectation. But often I welcome the dark days of January. I can sit for a minute, bundle myself up. I can be. I mean, what is expected of us when it's five degrees outside and it's dark at 4.30? What would we do if we could do anything? Maybe it's an opportunity to process all that has unfolded in our world, all that has unfolded in our lives, and to get intimate with the darkness. Why? Because it is only in the darkness that we can see light. The prophet Isaiah writes this, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Eventually, the Magi's journey, which is estimated to have been anywhere from a few days to a few weeks to a few months, came to an end. The star that they had followed suspended itself in motion, as if waiting for them to catch up. The star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And behold, here in the dark, in the nighttime swirl of wonder, was Jesus, an infant, resting in peace on the outskirts of Jerusalem, his presence, what he would mean to the world unknown, probably to even the neighbor next door. Here was the God of the universe with a light leading the way in the middle of the night. And again, I wonder what the conversation the Magi had together might have been. I and mean, what did they say when they found the light shining down? Did they instantly know, ah, oh, this is the place? Or did they wonder a little bit? Were they unsure? Do you think it's this one? Maybe it's that house over there. Was there confusion? Or was there an immediate sense of awe and presence? Did they knock? Or did Mary and Joseph know they were coming? And were they standing ready to greet them? What did it feel like that very moment to meet God? How quickly did they organize their gifts and bow down to worship? What are you seeking? I asked the question earlier and I ask it again, what star are you chasing? What's twinkling on your horizon? How might God be revealing himself to you in the darkness of your night? What is the deepest desire of your heart? What do you long for in the darkness? What do you hope God will heal? What do you fear so deeply you do not utter it to anyone 
and you hold it in the dark. Where does that desire meet the brilliant star-struck love of the God of the universe? And will you follow that light out of the darkness? This star of Bethlehem still shines on the horizons of our life today, every day. The star of God, the light of God is breaking through our darkness. And most of us move too fast through life to see it, like a summer day perhaps. And understandably so, who wants to spend a lot of time in sorrow? Who wants to take full stock of pain and loss? Who wants to wonder why the world is as dark as it is? And who wants to sit still long enough to listen to God's voice in grief? Especially when we can numb it all with the little rectangle of light that comes from our phone? Who wants to wait for God to call us to the light of His horizon when there are so many other more easily accessible lights available to us, so many distractions, so many opportunities to skip over the inventory of the darkness. One thing I've learned on my journey of faith is that God moves so much slower than I think we would hope God could move. I like to move fast. When there is a rift in a relationship, I want to fix it immediately. When there is tension at work, I want it resolved by five o'clock. When one of my kids is struggling, I want to manage the situation for them, not because I think they can't figure it out themselves. I believe they can. But I want a resolution for them faster than they can make it happen. So I want to intervene because I want to be relieved from whatever burden I feel for them. I want God to move faster. But we spend, as human beings, a lot of time in the dark. We live in a dark world. So it's no surprise then that God says to us, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. God never promises to move fast. And out of the dark and formless void at the very beginning of time, out of absolute complete darkness, of all the things God could speak and do, God said, let there be light. We have to sit and find the source of that light. To move slow enough through life to notice the star dangling in the sky, the voice of God, the invitation of God calling to us, lest we race too fast past it. I'll close with um, this final thought. When I, uh, when I take the trash out at night, I don't know about your house, but there's an ongoing debate in our house about whose responsibility it is to take the garbage out. And when um, we take the trash out at night, we have to go down our back deck and across the driveway back to where our garage is to throw our garbage away. And when I first step outside, when I have had enough of everybody arguing over whose turn it is and I just do it myself, I can't see the bottom step of the deck 
And so I have the trash bag in one hand and I have a death grip on the railing of our back deck. And I walk down and then at the very bottom I do one of these to make sure I can feel the ground because I don't want to trip and fall on my face because it's just dark. My eyes haven't adjusted yet to the night. And I walk across the driveway and, and, and pitch the bag into the container. And as I, start, I turn around and I start to walk back, I can start to see things. In just the few minutes I've been out there, my eyes start to adjust. I can see the glow of lights in the house. The other day, I looked over and I saw the crusted leaves that had fallen after the last pickup and there was a little bit of snow crusted on the leaves. I actually saw the tire swing on our back tree that had been launched up over a branch somewhere in June and nobody ever bothered to pull it down. I could start to see the contours of life. I could start to see the threads of light from the sky wrapping themselves around the objects in my yard. And sometimes I'd pause just for a second on the driveway to take it all in and to see what I can see. Because only when we stop and let our eyes adjust to life can we see the light of God. Like the Magi, we are called to find our way in the dark. To find the thread of heaven that is illuminating our world in some small way, some hard-to-find way. God doesn't make himself mysterious for fun. That is not God's purpose. God gives himself his light to us so we can find him. But the journey to finding him is important. And we have to spend time figuring out who we are, who the world around us is, before we can truly see that light. So this week, my friends, as the sun sets early on all of our days, I invite you in this Advent season to sit for a minute in the darkness. Wait just a little bit before you flip the lights on. What starts to take shape in the room you're in? Maybe light a candle, an Advent candle. Any candle will do. Watch the flame dance a bit. Ask God to lead you to his light and purposes. Step outside on a cold night. Try to take stock of even the one or two stars we can see outside of Chicago. Ask God to reveal to you his love, his presence. Ask him to show you the way through the darkness so that just like the Magi, we might find ourselves this Christmas season at the feet of Jesus, wondering together what this mystery, this mystery light in the dark means for us, and wondering together how we can worship and receive the depths of that light. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, it is a gift to sit in this space as children of the light. God, you use the dark beauty of this season to lead us to the brightest of all lights, your love, your grace, your mercy, your salvation for us. Lord, teach us how to sit still long enough to see you shine on the horizon to orient our lives, our prayers, our fears, our songs, our wonderings, our friendships, to orient all that we are to you, 
so all that we have might bow to your glory on the magical night of Christmas. In Jesus' name, the church together said, amen.